I've been fascinated with how people learn for as long as I can remember. That makes it all that much more special to get to talk with the UCLA Distinguished Professor of Psychology today, Dr. Robert Bjork, about using cognitive psychology to enhance learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I am absolutely thrilled, as I mentioned up top, to be welcoming Dr. Robert Bjork to the show. He is the Distinguished Research Professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Los Angeles. And Bob's research focuses on human learning and memory and on the implications of the science of learning for instruction and training. Welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed, Bob. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for responding to the invitation. I thought perhaps we could start out by you sharing a little bit about the Bjork Learning and Forgetting Lab. How did that get started and what kinds of things are you researching in the lab today? Well, our laboratory here, which is co-supervised by uh, Professor Elizabeth Bjork, my wife and colleague, has focused for a long time on what we think of as kind of the basic architecture of how people learn and remember sort of uh, how the system works. In recent years, we've been increasingly conscious that some of that very basic research has very strong implications for education and for self-regulated learning. That is how we manage our own learning. And the notion of the Bjork Learning and Forgetting Lab just reflects that forgetting is not entirely a negative process. That is, there's a number of senses in which forgetting, in the sense of losing access to information, can be almost a partner to learning. But in any case, uh, it's a very active lab in which there are a mixture of postdocs and uh, graduate students, and uh, actually a lot of undergraduates involved because it's sort of motivating. They have recently, they're in the process, they're very involved in their own learning, and they tend to have a feeling they could do it better. So uh, (laughs) they play a key role in our research too. Oh, that must be a wonderful opportunity for them to to get to see it in practice. What's particularly wonderful for them is that uh, most of them work closely with a graduate student on some one project. And uh, that is a kind of synergy that's very effective. And in a lot of ways, they get more out of working closely with a grad student who's, you know, just a few years older than them than they would with Elizabeth or me. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of wonderful to observe in a lot of different ways. What are some of the common misperceptions about how we think that we learn versus how we actually learn? There's a whole series of them, but I think a kind of overriding force of the misconceptions is a kind of belief that we work something like 
a man-made recording device of mm-hmm. some kind, like maybe a CD disc or something. That, that information kind of writes it on ourselves, and then you know, when we're asked to recall, we kind of play it off of there. And uh, in almost every critical way, we differ from any such device, both how information is stored, uh, what happens in the retrieval, and so on. So this has been a kind of continuing fascination for me personally, which is that how can it be that we have all these years of learning things and formal education and then uh, end up really not understanding the process? Mm-hmm. You might just think by sheer trial and error during all of our educational experiences, we'd kind of come to understand ourselves better than we apparently do. I've often joked with people saying, I wish I could fix this hard drive in my brain because I can still remember the lyrics to all these camp songs from when I used to be a camp right, counselor, yeah. but I can't remember mm-hmm. where my keys are. And I know that that's a perfect example of that misconception. What has been the biggest surprise for you in all your studying of memory and learning that revealed one of your own misperceptions? I know you said this was early in your career. Yeah, early, all the way back when I was a grad student at Stanford, I won't go into the details of the research we carried out, but it was clear that in a, in a condition that caused forgetting, which we just think of losing the information from memory, that same condition led to better learning measured at a delay. Eventually, over years, even decades of research, we found all these different situations where the very same thing that produces forgetting, then enhances learning if the material is restudied again. I sometimes called this that forgetting is a friend of learning. Mm-hmm. And so if we delay restudying some information, we'll forget more before we restudy, but then that will enhance greatly the effectiveness of the relearning. That's sometimes called the spacing effect, a very robust thing if you study something twice, uh, either right in a row, or you study it once, go on and do other things, and come back and study it. It's in that second case that you have much better long-term memory. Uh, we also showed years ago that if you change the environmental context from the first time you study something to the second time you study it, <clears throat> if you're tested there, you will tend to remember less when you're in some new place than where than if you're back where you studied it. But if you study it again, then you're better off to study it uh, in a different place. Hmm. And of course, that has implications for, for teaching in colleges because often how the study guides advise students to find some one place to study and do all their studying in that place. But the research says if you want to remember something optimally, it's actually better to study it in more than one place. What are some of the other components that make up successful remembering? Well, an absolute key, and it's been very active in research recently, is the critical importance of what we tend to refer to as retrieval practice. So when you recall something from memory, when you produce it, it does far more than to reveal that you did indeed have it in your memory. 
what you retrieve becomes much more recallable in the future than it would have been otherwise. And interestingly, things that are in competition with it become less recallable in the future. So actually using our memories shapes our memories, you know, rather than something like a, a memory compact disc or something where you play information on it, you leave things the way they were. As we use our memory, the things we recall become more recallable. Things in competition with it become less recallable. And this is just uh, important both theoretically in terms of how memory works, but in a practical sense, uh, for students, for all of us, we should do, as I sometimes advise students, we should input less and output more. A student who just decides to go over the material again and highlight it in a different color, say, that's nowhere near as effective as producing that information, as maybe a couple students getting together and asking each other questions. Facing is a critical thing to know. Um, knowing to test yourself, that is often testing, is kind of seems to be a, a, a dirty word among people these days, but that's why sometimes we talk about retrieval practice, but <laughs> Change the low stakes or no stakes testing is actually key to optimizing mm -hmm. um, learning. And so uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of things to get in your, uh, you become sophisticated as a learner. There's a set of things to, to learn just how to manage your own learning activities. What would be an example of something that would be in competition with something that I was learning? Is it around the same topic that we're trying to teach or trying to learn or yes. is it? Yeah, it would often be, or let's say you're, uh, it can be, it can be in the domain of skills and procedures too. You need to learn how to operate some new software. You use it effectively. And then as you retrieve it, use it. You, there may be some competition from the old, out-of-date version of that or something similar. You know, often in our lives, let's say you make some, you're a student or whatever, and you you go across the country to go to school somewhere else, and all of a sudden there's all these new names to learn, names of streets, some new phone numbers, other numbers, names of buildings, names of... And as you use those new things, they gradually become accessible and the things from that are now kind of out of date numbers and addresses and all of that become inaccessible. It's a critical thing that when I say they become inaccessible, they are absolutely not gone. So uh, another key way we differ from anything like a memory in a computer is in that case where we update some information, it's like writing over it or something. Uh, in the case of human memory, what happens is the out-of-date information remains in memory because, but becomes inaccessible. It then doesn't interfere with recalling current information, but if it's necessary to relearn it, it's relearned at a greatly accelerated rate. It's reminding me a little bit, I used to, back in the days when I was in the business world, I used to coach executives on presentation skills and also trainers on presentation skills. And if they had issues with filler words like um, ah, uh, et cetera, we could use a, a service bell, a hotel service bell. 
And if you'd ring that yes. bell while they were saying the um, it was conditioning. And eventually, it actually only took about 15 minutes for the ums to practically go away entirely. And then if you reinforced it at some point in the future, it was then it was gone and it stuck. That's a good example because, and in fact, you talk about reinforcing the future. That is often necessary because things will come back. But, but then if they're again sort of suppressed, well, then it becomes uh, somewhat more permanent. I had to warn them, though, that you're going to find all your skills in presenting. If, you're, if you've got great inflection or you're really good with hand gestures or whatever your strengths are, those are going to go away for a little while because <laughs> your brain is going to be yes. so overwhelmed yes. by this new horrible punishment of the bell, but it will come back. But we have to just give some yes, room. Yeah, that's, that's... that's no, a very good point. Absolutely right. I mean, for a while, the, just the monitoring of that could lead to a kind of paralysis. What is interleaving and how is it important to the learning process? Interleaving is something we're, we're probably doing more work on our laboratory right now than any other one topic. And what it refers to is that in all those real-world situations where there's several related tasks to be learned or several components of some tasks to be learned, the tendency is to provide instruction or have people practice in what we refer to a blocked fashion. I mean, it seems to make sense to people to sort of work on one thing at a time. We're now finding for a constant amount of practice, interleaving the separate things to be learned leads to much better long-term retention. It slows the gain in performance during the training process, but then leads to much better long-term performance. And uh, this was first showed actually in a number of experiments on, on skills. It would be studies like you're learning to play tennis, and you know if, if you go somewhere now to um, learn to play tennis, what you will tend to get is blocked instruction. That is, the instructor will work often with a machine or whatever, will work on your forehand, and then they'll have you practice a backhand, and then they'll have you practice the serve, and they will block the practice, which again only seems to make sense. But it turns out for the same number of practice, if you kind of jump around almost randomly between a practicing a forehand, a backhand, a, a serve, you will appear to be making slower progress, but then your long-term performance and retention will be better. And this has been shown with many different skills. And then more recently, we've been shown that it's true for kind of verbal conceptual tasks as well. In one, just to give, give you a brief illustration, a study that got a lot of attention, we had people learn the styles of different painters from examples of their paintings. They studied paintings by 12 different artists, six paintings by each artist. And then the test later was when they saw a new painting, they had to say, which of those artists painted this new painting? And this is a painting they've never seen before, this new one? Never seen. And that's, that's crucial because this is sometimes called inductive or conceptual learning. You're trying to transfer what you learned to a new thing. Who painted this new painting? 
many things like are like that in actual real world of education and expertise. There's medical people will have to say, you know, I've never seen this particular skin lesion before, but they have to classify it. Yeah. But in any case, what was so important about that was not just that the interleaving the paint the paintings by different artists was better than showing one painter's six paintings right in a row. But the reason it got so much attention is at the end of the experiment, we asked people, what helped you learn better to have the paintings interleaved or blocked? And the very same people who had just performed better substantially with interleaving were almost uniformly said that blocking helped them learn better. Mm. And then that's been, now that's just on the paintings, but since then, Studies have been done, people learning families of birds, butterflies, women's voices, a whole variety of things. And uh, again, interleaving tends to enhance this kind of inductive learning, but people's subjective experience is quite the opposite. I have this sense that this is about to tie into our next topic, but you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Does this tie into us not liking to have difficulty in our learning, but actually it's helping us? Uh, Am I I on the right track here? You are exactly on the right track. So almost 21 years ago that I coined this term desirable difficulties, and that refers to a set of the conditions of learning where something like spacing, interleaving, testing rather than presenting looks like it's creating difficulties and impairing learning creating challenges, you're measuring different things, it looks like it's slowing down learning, but then it produces better long-term retention and transfer. There are difficulties in the sense that they pose challenges, uh, increase frequency of errors and so on, but they're desirable in the sense that they foster the very goals of instruction, which is you know, long-term retention and transfer of knowledge to new situations. And so, uh, yes, indeed, interleaving versus blocking is a good example. Varying the conditions of learning and the examples you provide rather than keeping them constant and predictable. Hmm. Spacing repeated study sessions rather than massing. I mentioned that spacing enhanced long-term memory, but actually, if you look at a very short retention interval, then massing looks better. So, of course, this corresponds to the cramming that uh, kids do prior to an exam. That can actually produce pretty good exam performance. It's just that by measures of memory and understanding, it'll be lost very quickly. Yeah, and don't ask them to tell you anything about it six weeks later or six days later, probably. That's exactly right. Yeah. I loved this title of a recent publication of yours, or I think it said it's in press, Making Things Hard on Yourself, but in a Good Way, Creating Desirable Difficulties to Enhance Learning. So we talked a little bit about desirable difficulties. Do you also then look at the undesirable difficulties that we should try to get out of the way for our learners? Yeah, we often have to emphasize that the word desirable is a key. There's a lot of ways to make things difficult for people that are just bad, period. And so, um, and in fact, even 
even um, difficulties that are desirable under most circumstances can be undesirable if the learner is completely unequipped to respond to them. Mm. So I'll just give you one example. One of the keys to being effective, actually manage your own learning or in teaching other people, is to take advantage of what's called the generation effect. And what that refers to is in any time, let's say you as a teacher, can take advantage of what your students already know and give them certain cues so that they produce an answer rather than you giving them the answer. You will enhance greatly their long-term attention. That's what's called the generation effect. Anything you come up with and generate, you'll remember much longer than if you are just presented that information. And so generation, incorporating generation is a desirable difficulty, but people have to succeed at the generation. Mm-hmm. If they fail, it's, it's no longer a desirable difficulty. So people need to have, the students need to have the past prior knowledge that puts them in the position to be able to generate and to make this very effective. In the generation effect, if they struggle along the way, perhaps getting it wrong at first, but then eventually making it, is that still a desirable difficulty? It really is, and you're, you've just hit on something that's another important current theme in our lab. It turns out, you know, people talk about trying to avoid students making errors. Maybe they'll learn their errors, this and that. But it, it turns out now lots of evidence that um, errors are kind of key complement of effective learning. And <clears throat> one thing that making errors does is when you've tried to answer it and let's say haven't succeeded, the subsequent studying you do is more effective. So even, even we now look at some cases of giving students uh, pre-testing on which they make almost 100% errors. That is, they haven't studied the material yet, and so they get very few things correct. But that pre-testing then enhances, sort of potentiates their subsequent studying and makes the studying more efficient. We tend to think, well, we should ask questions after somebody studies something, but now it looks like a lot of circumstances, the question should come before they study the material. You talked earlier about successful forgetting. I'd love to circle back and talk a little bit more about it now. Can you can you share a bit more about successful forgetting and why it's important in the learning process? Well, it's um, it, it gets to be a kind of complicated story, except <laughs> that when we forget, let, let's take one of the cases where forgetting enhanced learning, that's where you've studied something in one situation in the presence of certain cues and and so on. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you will tend to remember it better if you tested in that situation rather than if it's you're tested in some new situation where everything is different. Um, but what? But now, if I present it again, and so when I study something twice in two different contexts, two different settings, 
that appears to engage a number of processes that then support long-term rendering. One is you interpret, or to use our jargon, encode the information somewhat differently when it's studied a second time in a different place. And that introduces what we tend to call encoding variability, which helps long-term performance, particularly performance in some altogether new setting. So many of the things that cause forgetting create the opportunities for the information to be interpreted somewhat differently to make it be recalling it from the past study episode just a little bit more difficult. And I should probably emphasize there, we mentioned earlier that retrieval is a powerful learning event in the sense that you what you retrieve, you'll remember better later. But it's critical that you sort of succeed in the retrieval. And research says that the more involved or difficult the act of retrieval, provided you do succeed, the more powerful it is as a learning event. If you retrieve something and it's trivially easily, you just met this person and now you're going to retrieve their name a few seconds later, that's a good thing to do, but it'll have relatively small effects. Whereas an hour later, looking across the room and seeing that person retrieving their name will have very long-term powerful effects. And in that instance, was I successfully forgetting in the beginning when I couldn't recall it immediately, and therefore it sticks that much more when I remember it later? Am I getting that part of it correct? Yeah, that, that is essentially correct. Now, it turns out many things are involved in remembering people's names. <laughs> and yeah. and why we are just so bad at it, you know. So, I mean, um, names are arbitrary. They don't just map on to what we already know. We, we get presented people's names under sort of often extreme time-sharing kind of uh, circumstances. We're giving our own name. We're introducing a friend. So it's, it's, it's a poor circumstance for encoding. Basically, we tend not to practice that retrieval very much. People who are good at names do that. They're clear about how a name is pronounced, how a name is spelled. It's its own skill. Sometimes people think, well, while people are good at remembering names, it just uh, sort of sticks in their brain and they don't stick in ours and that. That couldn't be further from the truth. It's the activities that you carry out. And I will say, that this is another broad conclusion from the research that we've done now over decades, which is there's such a tendency that for people to think that the differences between individuals and how well they do on a later test or how well they remember names or whatever it is, that that reflects just innate differences in their brain. Really, the overwhelming evidence is what it reflects is the processes and activities carried out. And, and the key is for us all to learn how to learn more effectively. It's not just that in some domain, if we just find the right area, that learning will be effortless and easy. It's <laughs> not that way. Yeah. That brings me to my last question of this of this segment. Would you describe self-regulated learning and how it's important to the learning process? Well, that's been a, a, another key thing in terms of recent research, which is that um, as a consequence of our 
complex and rapidly changing world and also changes in technology and educational environments, more and more learning is happening outside of any formal classroom setting. It's in our own hands, so to speak. And not just during the years of formal education, but also more and more across the lifetime. Uh, people in their jobs need to learn new procedures, need to be retrained, maybe even in our hobbies and educations across our lifetime in terms of learning about bird watching or whatever it is. And this learning is, is in our own hand, and in that sense, is self-regulated. You can make an argument that it's always been important to know how to learn, but probably never more important right now to know how to learn effectively. The other thing that makes it important is people's intuitions are often just wrong. So uh, there's a lot to learn about how to learn. Now we're going to shift over then to the recommendations segment. And if people are like me and would love to learn more from you, there's a wonderful set of videos on YouTube from Go Cognitive, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. These are just little bite-sized five to six minute videos of Bob sharing about a lot of the topics that he and I have talked about today, about interleaving, about memory and learning, about the positive aspects of forgetting, the cramming looking better, and just lots. I think there are probably a collection of maybe 15 of them up there. And it looked like some other good videos from experts in the field too. So I would just encourage people to check out that link if yeah. you want to learn mm -hmm. more. I, I was enjoying going on that rabbit trail while I should have been grading and just going through and watching all those videos. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> and what do you Yeah, have? There's, there's a fair number of things. I think we put some on our website too that are interviews. What would you like to recommend to people that are listening today on teaching in higher ed? One thing is you mentioned that little article we wrote on making things hard on yourself. That is the one article that Elizabeth and I addressed to students. You know, most of the articles that we're writing are in professional journals and not easy to understand often and so on. So that particular article is a little different from other things we've written. I will say, too, that right now, for almost the first time, there are several really good books written for a more general audience on uh, the research on learning, on, on uh, cognitive science, its relevance to self-regulated learning and education. One of those is by three of our colleagues who are at Washington University in St. Louis. It's called Make It Stick, colon, The Science of Successful Learning. And that is a very good book because it it takes the kind of research we've been talking about and, and gives examples of it in terms of people's real lives. And another one we kind of collaborated with or helped a New York Times reporter, Benedict Carey, get very interested in this domain. And that book is also out too. It's called How We Learn, colon, and I forget what's after the colon. But um, that is too a really good book where he tries to relate these things to his own life. Mm. And uh, then one even newer ones written by a teacher who's been a teacher and administrator in the United Kingdom, uh, David Dedow, and it's titled, um, What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong? And um, 
I wrote a preface for those books. So there's three, this is kind of a unique time in that respect, three very accessible, very readable books that um, talk about sort of the cognitive science of learning. Oh, that, those sound like wonderful resources, and I'll be able to link to each one of those in the show notes so people can follow up and take even more of this and put it into practice. I just want to thank you once again for being on the episode. It was really an honor to have you respond to the invitation. I'm so excited for people to get to listen and, and get to learn from you. Oh, it was fun. It was fun to talk to you. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. As always, if you have suggestions for the show, I encourage you to go and visit teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And I also, you're, you know this is coming, encourage you to, listen, to subscribe to the Teaching in Higher Ed weekly update. And by doing that, once a week, you'll get an email that has two things in it. One is all of the show notes and all the links that we talked about on the show and an article included on either teaching or productivity. And when you subscribe the first time, you will get a free e-guide of the 19 educational technology tools to help you facilitate learning in the classroom and online. So go ahead and check that out if you haven't already. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. I welcome reviews or ratings on iTunes or whatever service it is you use to listen to the show. That just helps other people discover the show and build our listener community as we continue to learn from each other. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time.